Okay, so Jemmy read from Hebrews 11, which is a good complement passage to the one that is our passage for this morning. So we're going through a series in Genesis. We're walking through the book um, kind of section by section, and so we find ourselves at the end of chapter 22 and the whole of chapter 23. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Genesis 22. We're going to read that passage. Begins in verse 20 of chapter 22. It's on page 16 if you're using the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the Pew in front of you, and you can turn to page 16 and beginning in verse 20. Um, I'm going to make a few comments along the way as we walk through it here, and then we'll draw out some of the significance and the application from there. All right, so Genesis 22, <clears throat> verses, verse 20, all the way through the end of chapter 23. All right, here we go. Now after these things, which this was the sacrifice of Isaac, we considered that last week. So now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlap, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Remember that. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Makah. <laughs> what in the world are we doing? What is the point of this? What's the point of this genealogy here? Well, hold on. Genealogies often mark the end of a section, okay? So chapters 23 to 25 are transitional. The cycle of Abraham's life is coming to a close here because the climax of his life was with the sacrifice, the willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac. So now we're going to move on soon to Isaac. He's going to become center stage. And so the end of 22 here signals the end of the ending of the Abraham cycle, but it also gives the nod to Rebecca, Isaac's soon-to-be wife, who comes up in chapter 24, which we're going to look at next week. Okay, so now on to chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, people that lived in the land, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So he's a sojourner. How could Abraham bury the princess? Sarah means princess. The matriarch of the people of God in a borrowed Canaanite tomb. Like, it wouldn't take long for her to be forgotten, right? In fact, um, John Walton writes this. He says, A body was laid in a prepared shelf along with the grave goods, and later the skeletal remains were removed and placed in another chamber or in an ossuary box or simply swept to the rear of the tomb to accommodate another burial. Okay, so you can imagine it wouldn't take long before Sarah's forgotten. 
So verse 5, the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. So they honor him here with high praise. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. So he asked for property. They say, we'll give you a tomb. So they're a little reluctant with permanent rights of ownership, right? Verse 7, Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites. He's a humble man here. To the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me, Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. The gate of the city was kind of like the place where, it was like the legal center, where all the public decisions were made, transactions, resolution of disputes, treaties, and so forth, okay? Verse 11, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that's in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. But again, he wouldn't have any long-term rights to this property. So Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. You can see how this is kind of like customary, this, this kind of like haggling and, you know, euphemism. So actually, he probably shot the moon here. We don't totally know, but it's likely this is a really steep price. And he may have been saying that to dissuade Abraham from wanting to actually purchase it because he wanted the long-term rights. But he had set a price publicly. So if Abraham pays, he is committed. Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for Ephron. He's not going to haggle any further in case Ephron would back out. Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, that's kind of like resources, right? <laughs> um, the field with the cave that was in it throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that was in it, the cave that is in it, were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is God's word. Okay, so I have to say, I have to be honest, I was going to skip this section. So all Scripture is profitable, right? 2 Timothy 3. But not all Scripture is equally profitable, right? That's, I'm not saying that flippantly or in some kind of sacrilegious way. I think we would all probably acknowledge that Romans 8 is more profitable than the census in Numbers 1 <laughs> or the tabernacle materials in Exodus 26, 
Don't you kind of speed up through that stuff? But, as it turns out, there is more profit than appears at first glance in this chapter. And that may actually even be a lesson for us. Not to blow by things that seem irrelevant. Okay? And the relevance, for what it's worth, is not, you know, an encouragement to pre-plan your funeral and your burial arrangements. The issue is not, hey, make sure you get a realtor, you know, to go to bat for you in situations like this. Otherwise, you might get stuck with 400 shekels, you know, you might get gouged. No. So as we prepare to dive in and grasp the real significance of the passage, I want you to think about this question. Where are you going to be buried? Some of you probably have this figured out. You've maybe done your pre-planning. For others of you, maybe the younger you are, the less likely you've thought about or planned for this. But either way, how is it that you decide where you want to be buried? Isn't it that you want to be buried in a place that you call home, right? So that is actually an increasingly difficult question for our increasingly mobile, transient culture, right? But still, I think we would probably all, most of us would agree that that would be our desire, which you can see why, in addition to cost, maybe that's the reason why cremation is an increasingly attractive option. You know, you can go with your family wherever they go, so you're at home with them, or your ashes could be scattered in a place that held special meaning for you, even if obtaining a funeral plot in that place is not the most feasible scenario. So with that in mind, this question of home and burial, let's dive into the passage and consider its significance in four movements, okay? So, sojourners, Abraham was one, so are we. First fruits, hope, and home, okay? So, first point, sojourners. Verse 2. Look at it again. Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. So a sojourner is... Someone, according to Derek Kidner, someone who didn't enjoy the rights of a resident, one who had abandoned his homeland for political or economic reasons and sought refuge in another community. A stranger is one who had no land of his own but is settled upon the land of another, a sort of a tenant. Okay? So here's Abraham, the father of faith. He's an immigrant. Still, after 62 years of semi-nomadic existence, isn't that crazy? Like, is that significant? Well, the book of Hebrews tells us it's significant. So, did you hear it when Jemmy read it? Hebrews 11, 8 to 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. That place is Canaan, right? He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, 
as in a foreign land, living in tents. Wait, wasn't this supposed to be home? The inheritance? But he's living in a tent with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Hmm. Even Abraham somehow knew that he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Or skip down to verse 13 again. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So referring back to this passage. So they received the promises, but they didn't receive the fulfillment of the promises. Faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. Okay, so verse 14 of Hebrews 11. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better homeland, a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So that's amazing. God promised Abraham the land. And he lived in it without owning any property, without building a house. He was living in tents, temporary dwellings, right, for over 60 years at this point. And he didn't call God's faithfulness into question. He trusted him. He was looking to his real home. So here's what we would expect. Like Sarah dies, we would ex expect to him to head back to his fatherland, to his family, his wife's family, and bury her there. That would be the natural thing. So these promises are yet unfulfilled. The matriarch dies. What's going to become of these promises? So one commentator, Alan Ross, and there was some trouble with the software, so we don't have these quotes up here this morning. We do have the scripture verses, but um, not the quotes, so I'll try to read slowly. Alan Ross says, The inclusion of the genealogy of Nahor just prior to this chapter, remember we read that, reminds the reader that the ancestral home was in the east. But the account of the burial in the land of promise informs the reader that there was no going back for Abraham. The future was in Canaan, even though the first recipients of the promise would die before that promise could be realized. For this man of faith, however, Sarah's death provided another situation in which faith could operate. In life, the patriarchs were sojourners. In death, they were heirs of the promise and occupied the land. So there's no going back for Abraham. Had they been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they could have returned. But as it was, they were desiring a better homeland, trusting God's promise and following him where he led them. Okay? So significance for us, why is Hebrews 11 in the Bible? Why this list of the faithful saints and how they followed God, trusted God? Well, do you know how chapter 12 of Hebrews starts? It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also. 
let us also run the race by faith. Okay, so just like they did, we also need to run the race that's set before us. We are sojourners. We are Christian pilgrims. If you're a Christian following Jesus, you're a, a pilgrim. You're not home yet. So how many of you are familiar with John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress? It's actually one of the, like, best-selling books of all time. I don't know if it can challenge Harry Potter or not, but um, it's, before Harry Potter, it was probably in the top three or four or five. Um, so you know what the full title is? The Pilgrim's Progress from this world to that which is to come, the manner of his setting out his dangerous journey and safe arrival at the desired country. That's us. He wrote the Pilgrim's Progress for every man, like every Christian. It's the story of our journey as Christian pilgrims. That's us. We're not home yet. So we also, like Abraham and Sarah, receive promises without receiving the full fulfillment of those promises, which is why, as Christians, we have to walk by faith and not by sight. Right? We walk by faith and not by sight. So guess what? We all buy our graves without having obtained, obtained the promises. So this world, there's so much beauty, so much to enjoy in this life, many good gifts from our good God, we can give thanks to God for them. We can savor them. We can enjoy them. But we're never going to totally feel at home here. We shouldn't even try. And there's a reason that there's a restlessness in us. A sense that we're no, never totally satisfied. Sometimes what we try to do is we, we have like a taste. There's like an echo of it on a vacation or something, this glimpse of beauty, and you just want to capture it and hold on to it forever, don't you? Have you ever had that experience? It's just an echo, and we're constantly frustrated, and oftentimes we feel just displaced and maybe uncomfortable in our own skin, maybe even our own soul, in a sense. We're just not at home. We're not at rest yet. Well, C.S. Lewis famously said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Which is true, we're sojourners. The men's Bible study is studying 1 Peter. You know how Peter opens that book? He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. We are chosen exiles. Isn't that a crazy juxtaposition? Pilgrims, almost like refugees displaced from our true home. We're all living east of Eden. And we're not home yet. So things were perfect, but sin led to us being cast out away from God's presence, His immediate presence. But the story of the Bible is, rather than casting us all out into outer darkness forever, in love God drew near. The Father sends His Son to seek and save the lost, to go on a rescue mission to the domain of darkness and rescue us, bring us to the kingdom of 
light. So I love how it's stated in Ephesians 2. Remember, 2.12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. You've been brought home, even though you're not home. So we have the promises, but we don't have the fullness of the promise yet, right? For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, this is Jew-Gentile hostility, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens in relation to God and his family, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we have been brought home. We've been brought back into God's family. We have adopting grace. We have redemption. We've been reconciled to the Father, but we're still sojourners. We're not home yet. We long for the full redemption, the deliverance that's to come. We long for Jesus to come back and set everything to rights and bring us home. So if Abraham is a forerunner, a model of faith for us, he walked by faith and not by sight. Okay, even though he waited for decades, he and Sarah both died in faith, not having received what was promised. He is an example for us of that kind of patient faith. It's the same thing for us. So we are walking by faith and not by sight. We've got to wait for the fulfillment of the promises because we are sojourners. Okay? But, even though we're sojourners, we're not home yet, thankfully, God does give us tokens along the way to encourage us, to strengthen our faith. He gives us first fruits of the future fulfillment. Okay? So we're not going to be totally satisfied until we're home. But that doesn't mean there's nothing until that day. He gives us the first fruits. So, point number two, first fruits. Abraham was a sojourner in Canaan. Okay? And like I said before, he normally would not be able to secure property as a sojourner. But that's exactly what happened, right? In this whole transaction at the city gate, land was not merely given, even though that's what they wanted to do, because they could obviously take it back. It was acquired as a possession. So do you see that possession language? Did you notice it? you see how it was repeated? Look at 23.4. Give me property among you. Down in verse 9. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property. Um, different word, but similar concept in verse 18. Abraham, the, the, the field was made over to Abraham as a possession. And then finally, verse 20. The field and the cave were made over to Abraham as property. Okay? 
So the point is, here it is. The first bit of property that the people of God own in Canaan. God's starting to fulfill his promise. Do you see it? It's the first fruits of the fulfillment of the promise because God had promised this land to Abraham a number of times. We'll just go through them really quick. Genesis 12, 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there. Genesis 13, 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land that you see, I'll give it to you and your offspring forever. And then he later on said, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I'm going to give it to you. Genesis 15, 18. On that day, the Lord, God made a, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land. Genesis 17, 8. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. So God had made this promise over and over again, but all his days, Abraham's like 140 almost by now, and he's got no deeds yet. No fulfillment had taken place. But now at the death of Sarah, God provides a token, the first fruits of the full inheritance that's coming. So what does that token serve as? It's like a visible, tangible representation of God's faithfulness, of the fact. It's like a pledge of God's future fulfillment of his promises. So for Abraham, that token was a field and tomb for his dead wife. What about for us? What are the tokens, the signs, the pledges, the first fruits? of the promises that we've received. Well, in our case, it's not a tomb for our dead wife. It is an empty tomb from which our dead but now risen Savior emerged. Look at the language in 1 Corinthians 15. It should be up there. In Christ, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So these bodies, we, we've been made alive together with Christ, so we're already spiritually alive, but your bodies are decaying and falling apart, and we groan, and isn't it a bummer? And we hate death. Well, guess what? We have the hope of the resurrection. And God gives us a token, the first fruits, proof, a pledge that one day we are going to be resurrected. We look at Jesus raised from the dead by faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. And we know that we also will follow one day. We have another pledge, another token. We've been given the Spirit. Romans 8.23 says this, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Wait a second, I thought we were already adopted. I thought we were already redeemed. Yes, but we are adopted and we have been redeemed, but we await the full fullness of those promises. 
We can't wait to see our Father face to face and be resurrected and be completely and finally and fully free forever. No more slavery to sin. No more struggle with sin at all anymore. So we do have redemption, but not full redemption. We groan because we have the Spirit as a pledge, as a down payment, as, a, as first fruits of what is to come. So the Spirit of God testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and we long for Him to bring us home, don't we? We long to be done with our battle against sin, and we groan in the face of sufferings of this fallen world. We long for the renewal of all things. So aren't you glad that God has given us a token, a pledge, first fruits, that that's coming? He did it for Abraham, and he does it for us. An empty tomb and the Spirit within us that just causes us to cry out and long for and wait in hope for the full fulfillment of those promises. So the kingdom has come, but it hasn't yet fully come. The decisive victory has been won at the cross, but the full victory is yet to come, where all the enemies are thrown down. So Dale Ralph Davis um, writes this. Yahweh's promise of the land has begun to come true. It is, to be sure, a small but real encouragement. This little deed of land. Something small can prove a huge encouragement. That is what Abraham finds here, a small sign of God's faithfulness. And it's easy to miss seeing such mercy drops. Haven't you often found that Yahweh takes this way with you? There's not necessarily the total relief or the complete solution, but there is the tiny token, the small assurance that God gives in the midst of our sorrows and sadnesses at just the time we need. Do you have any examples of that? Little mercy drops of faithfulness? Like here, God promises for all his people to keep us to the end. Have you ever had a moment where you felt like you were this close to just scrapping it all and God kept you? That's a mercy drop right there. It's a token of his faithfulness that he's going to keep you all the way to the end. Isn't that encouraging? Have you ever been just totally desperate and like on the brink and you feel like you're going to crack and God intervenes and delivers you and rescues you and keeps you? And you look back and you say, thank you deliverance? Isn't that encouraging that he's going to keep keeping you all the way to the end, the full deliverance? Every healing, God doesn't always heal us, but every healing is one of those mercy drops because one day we're going to be totally healed. No more crying or pain or suffering anymore. No more tears. Every provision is a mercy drop. Every answered prayer, every deliverance from sin and suffering, every bit of grace to endure suffering with joy even is one of those mercy drops. So this is the kind of stuff we should share with each other, <laughs> these encouragements, these mercy drops, because, I mean, if, if you want to have something to talk about at your community group today or later this week, share the ways in which God has given you tokens of his faithfulness this past week or month or year. He's going to make good on all his promises. And thankfully, for us sojourners, and it can be like going through the desert, thankfully he doesn't just leave us to ourselves. He gives us mercy drops of living water rain in the desert to encourage us.
tokens of his faithfulness. We are sojourners. We have a home, but we're not there yet. But it's already ours, so it's in our hearts, even though our hearts are not yet in it. So God's first fruits faithfulness and the fulfillments of his promises are like the movie trailer for the new heavens and the new earth. Like our lives as a church, all God's faithfulness and goodness to us is kind of like a movie trailer to the re- when, when the story really starts getting good, when Jesus comes back. Like, don't you... It's just like a teaser, isn't it? You watch that trailer and you're like, oh, I can't wait to see that movie. You see God's faithfulness and token form in this life and you're like, oh, you want Jesus to come back and you want things to really get started. So it's coming. We've got to wait for it, but we wait for it in hope. Point number three. These last two are, are briefer. So Abraham wept, he mourned, for his wife, but the provision of the property meant that Abraham buried his wife in hope of the full fulfillment of God's promise. So these first fruits, the token, was given to bolster Abraham's hope. But not just Abraham, ours too, future generations. I mean, you can think that place, that cave at Machpelah, you know, Abraham was buried there, and other forefathers It's mentioned in in Genesis. And it was testimony to God's faithfulness that he was going to make good on those promises. This was the beginning of that fulfillment, that this is going to be your land. I'm going to give it to you. And then that promise of the land gets ratcheted up in the New Testament. So Romans 4.13 says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So, yes, a promise of the land, but the ultimate fulfillment of the land promise is actually the meek shall inherit the earth. People who follow in Abraham's footsteps will be heirs of the world. So, encouraging. We have this hope that God's going to make good on all his promises. And so Abraham grieved for his wife, but he buried her in hope. And we, because of hope, do not grieve as those who have no hope. Remember 1 Thessalonians 4? We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. They've died, euphemism for death, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And then he goes on to lay out that hope of the return of Jesus, and we are to encourage one another with these words. So we have a living hope, can't be killed by death, and so we buy our graves without having obtained the promise, but we do so in hope that every graveyard filled with Christians is like a garden. We plant the seed but what's going to be raised is imperishable resurrection life. So you may have your grave plot purchased in your town of birth or upbringing or the place that you be called home, that, that, that uh, you came to call home. But ultimately, this world is not our home. Our real home is coming down out of heaven. The new heavens and new earth one day will come. 
Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So sojourners, so glad God gives us tokens because it is hard on our way to the promised land. But he gives these tokens, and so we wait, we trust, we walk by faith and not by sight in hope of the full fulfillment because one day very soon, we're going to all make it home. We are sojourners, east of Eden, displaced, not home yet. We deserve to be exiled, cast into outer darkness forever. But because of Jesus, the first fruits, we can have the first fruits of our salvation. We have the Spirit. Got this empty tomb in the Spirit as testimony. We wait. We die in hope. Death doesn't dash our hopes. We have a living hope. God's going to make good on our hope. Second Peter 3.13, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness, new earth in which righteousness dwells. So our home is coming. Our hope is going to be realized. This morning, do you feel displaced? Do you, are you suffering? Are you groaning? Well, guess what? One day we're going to get home. We're going to get in. We're going to arrive We have a home. We're not there yet, but it is coming. Paradise is prepared. We are being prepared for it. And one day we're going to come home. And I love this quote by C.S. Lewis to close. At the present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience, then they will put on its glory, or rather, that the greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. We're going to get in. We're going to get home. So sojourner, brother and sister, savor those tokens and let's wait in hope because home is coming. Let's pray and then we're going to sing a song that's very appropriate here to close before we have our brief members meeting. It's called By Faith. Listen to these words as the musicians come up. By faith, our fathers roamed the earth with the power of his promise in their hearts of a holy city built by God's own hand, a place where peace and justice reign. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done, we walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have a home, even though we ran away from home, as it were, in our sin. You came after us to seek and save the lost and to bring us back to yourself. And you've given us yourself 
You've given us an empty tomb and the Spirit within us as token testimony, clear pledge that you will keep us all the way home. And I pray that we would be a faithful pilgrim people, walking by faith and not by sight and living in hope. of the fulfillment of every single one of your promises. Help us to trust you. We believe, help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.